0: We did two million dollars in our first year, but the first week was challenging. I'd say I knew that we had that the product was decent. I knew that we had hit a bar on that. That because you know, I had waited to launch until I felt like we hit a bar that was that was you know the right place to be in at least for the first go, and which is I think a higher level, uh, a higher bar than say uh, you know maybe a SaaS business's uh, beta product or. MVP for that, you know, whatever you want to call it. Can't really take an MVP approach to a high-end footwear product. So, uh, you know, it was beyond that. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests, famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman.
1: You're a Wizard in the Hawk Talk. I'm here with Paul Hedrick. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So got to kick it off. I assume the day you're born, you come out of the womb, kick on some cowboy boots and start, you know, kicking around in style, right? That's just love at
0: first sight with the boots. That's exactly right. I was born in cowboy boots. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, I uh, like I was born and raised in Texas, uh, born in Houston, Texas, ended up Moving to Dallas when I was pretty young, so uh, I grew up there and went to high school there. But yeah, like any good Texan kid, had a pair of red ropers, uh, probably age five or so, and you know would romp around the grocery store and whatnot in those. And probably wasn't until. College really—that I started to get back into it. And where'd you go to school? I went to Harvard for undergrad. Well, that was the only school I went to. I didn't go to grad school, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I ended up getting into boots around my senior year again, and was getting a little homesick. Was thinking about moving back to Texas after college, and uh, yeah, that was the beginning of the of the love, I'd, I'd say.
1: And so, taking it back, wait. Tell me more about like your upbringing, your parents, like were your parents
0: entrepreneurial? What was childhood like? I had a very fortunate childhood. I you know, grew up in a nice neighborhood, uh, had parents who uh, were very supportive of me and my uh, two siblings and you know, by and large, let us do what we want to do. Um, neither of them were entrepreneurs. My mom was a nurse and my uh, dad was a consultant actually for most of his career. Uh, management consultant and you know of which i I didn't really know what that meant when I was a kid, of course, <laughs> I just knew it meant traveling a lot and doing business things, so uh, yeah, they really let us foster our own interests and and My interest bounced all over the place uh, when I was a kid. Yeah, so
1: tell me about it. What were the early, like, what you want to be when you grow up, when you're, like, four years old? What were you saying? Well, four
0: years old, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Batman. Uh, But I think just beyond that, (laughs) uh, I was really into rocks and fossils. A little bit, I wanted, for a little while, I wanted to be a paleontologist. Uh, You know, this was in the Jurassic Park era, of course, in the 90s. I then... uh, was pretty creative. Uh, so I actually, for many years, thought I wanted to do something creative, whether that was actual art, or actually when I was a, a, in middle school, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And then in high school, that sort of graduated to wanting to be an architect. And it really wasn't until I graduated and went off to college that I started thinking about business and I wasn't one of those kids who you know, was, was selling lemonade and starting a business every year. And that was never me, really. I was more drawn to, to making stuff. I think the creativity in different comes out in
1: different ways. And were your parents ever like trying to guide you on profession or just kind of like, you want to be an architect, a paleontologist, whatever, sounds great. Whatever you want, it makes you happy. How what was their kind of dynamic?
0: Yeah, that, that was definitely more the latter. It was more uh, supportiveness. And, you know, I, both of the, neither of them grew up with a ton of money. Both of them ended up going to a good college and uh, you know, pursuing their own passions. You know, so I think in many ways, my my generation, my siblings were more in the camp of, hey, we worked really hard. Let's, you know, you guys can get and do what you want. My sister's a, a therapist. My uh, brother started out uh, in tech and nonprofit and then now is uh, uh, working in business as well. So uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a nice environment. And I, I think because of that, but we all had different personalities, of course, and this is where nature and nurture can, I, I think uh, the, the debate can begin. Yeah. For some reason, I was always really self-motivated. I was the, the kid in my family who, was always found my own way to, to play with my toy. I didn't need to be, I didn't bother my parents, a lot of my siblings, a lot. I, I was a bookworm as soon as I was able to be, I was lost in my own universe a lot of the time. And, and it led to me, I think, being a pretty self-motivated person, And so. And I love that you bring up the nature versus nurture thing. It's, uh, I have a
1: new, our first baby is about to turn a year. And you realize that they're born with their personality. Like that's something I, that was the biggest surprise as a parent that I've ever I, I had, period was like three days in i saw her personality and it's held up that way and so that's pretty cool yeah it is really cool to see it's like there is so much nature involved in personality that you know you could similar what you said i have two siblings as well that we are very different like we have a lot of similar values and like we've been taught similar things but our personality what gets us excited very different yeah likewise so when did you like obviously there's, you know, a level of achievement aspiration and like, you know, focus to want to go to an Ivy League, to go to Harvard, something like that. Like, when did that kick in when you're like, I want to go to one of the top, if not the top school in the country?
0: I'd say on the education front, I, there was a couple points in my journey that were impactful. One of which was in eighth grade, my uh, parents encouraged me to consider going to a different school uh, ahead of high school because I was in the referred to as the parochial school system in, in Dallas and it was a good school uh, and but everyone all of my friends were kind of going to this one school that uh, was probably it was bigger it was a very well-rounded school it was a great school you know better athletics overall uh, good education but there was a much smaller school <laughs> that had a reputation of sort of being the quirky I'd say more nerdy school and uh, yeah I ended up I don't even. I don't even remember being part of the decision, to be honest. But I probably was. I was in eighth grade, um, had some agency in my in my life, but not a ton. And I went there, and then that was really what showed me. Uh, you know, because I was an outsider, I was the only. You know, I think it was one of two kids joining that grade, and so I had to, you know, make new friends and dive into a much more rigorous academic environment. And I got really dedicated to it. It became, you know, one of those things that be, that sparked my competitive juices. I was never a. I played sports, you know, I it's it's easy to be a captain of the sports team when you've got 40, 40 guys in your class, but I was able to do a, a couple of those things, but I, I knew, you know, from eighth, ninth grade, right, I certainly wasn't going to be going to college or for any other reason than than probably my brain and my work ethic. So, yeah, that's when I started really working on it, getting serious. And then, yeah, high school was awesome. I, I it, We had amazing teachers. Uh, it was an amazing system that they put you through and it really opened my eyes to, you know, what you could do uh with that sort of environment. And I always wanted to go to Notre Dame. I grew up one you know a Notre Dame fan. That's where my parents met. That's where my dad went. Um and uh yeah that actually is where I uh was going to go. I ended up getting waitlisted uh or rejected everywhere else except Notre Dame <laughs> and then you know had a little bit of a Hey, should I try to get off the waitlist at any of these places? And that was that moment where I just said, "Yeah, sure, let's let's try to get into Harvard, um, see if it works out." And started sending them letters and got some advice from other people on how to get off the waitlist. And didn't think it would work, and then it worked, and it was a little surreal. And yeah, you know, showed up a few months later. And how was it? How was the experience at Harvard? And well, it obviously, it's a reputation, right? It, it's, it, it is what it is. Uh, it has a little bit of a mystical reputation as someone who's going there without having, I never even visited before I got in. Uh, I didn't even know that it was like uh, in an urban environment. I thought it was going to be, you know, sort of like Notre Dame and, um, you know, kind of a big campus driven environment. It's not like that is in the city, (laughs) but it was great. I'd say the big takeaways for people who were curious were one, it was normal, it was college. It was everything that you think, you know, it's a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds Going out and having their collegiate experience, and as much awkwardness and fun and partying and, and studying as there is anywhere else, probably just as many cliques and groups and athletes and nerds and even within that environment, definitely all, all kinds of kinds. And you know, figuring out where you fit in is just as much a part of the the culture there as it is anywhere else. Uh, I was maybe a little surprised by that. I had a lot of fun in college. You know, I was a bookworm and. Um, you know pretty pretty dirty in, in high school and I you know led college I let loose a little bit more in college I would say <laughs> and that was possible I did the big thing for me was I just realized there is so many amazing people out there and if I was going to stand out I was gonna to have to tell a different story uh, you know I wasn't the number one person in the country at anything you know uh, probably not even the top one you know, 0.1% in anything. And you know, Harvard has a lot of those people. And that was when I decided, you know, being well-rounded, which is something I'd already been doing uh, for a lot of my life. Maybe I should, maybe being really well-rounded at a few really interesting things could be my thing. And yeah, I, I, it was possible there. I wouldn't say it was super easy, uh, but you know, got out, got out. <laughs> Not with a degree, I will say. I didn't. <laughs> I certainly didn't graduate top of my class.
1: <laughs> no, and as you said, you're literally with the best in the world. Like even being in the room, I think has creates a lot of growth in its own right. So that makes sense. And during college, did you know what you want to do after? Like, did you go there saying like this? Like I have a plan. Or it was like I got into Harvard now. I got to figure this out. And, like at what point did you start thinking about what's next?
0: Man, I really did not know what anything was. I, I felt so out of place in some of this conversation with people. know yeah, there's a lot of really career oriented people there um, maybe expectedly a lot of people who you know at 18 years old knew exactly what an i-banker was and a, what what the difference between banking and consulting was and you know what the derivatives trader or you know what <laughs> all this stuff that that you know candidly I, it took me fumbling through some interviews without doing any enough research to even, you know, coming out pretty embarrassed, (laughs) to to be honest, to figure out, or maybe I should actually figure out what some of these jobs are in the business, you know, quote unquote universe. Because by that point, I knew that I wasn't going to have as sharp a view on what I wanted to do. And I wanted to find something that was generalist, either in the, you know, operating universe, consulting universe, or or, or even uh, financial universe. You know, I know in economics with a minor in math so it you know, definitely was more oriented toward the the quantitative and where did that come from why why economics and math because you picked that going in right yeah math was my kind of my thing in high school uh, you know I, I that was definitely the subject that i spent the most time on and and probably you know enjoyed the most i think in retrospect because i had great teachers i did not enjoy it as much in college but it's what it is I was actually on a different path it was called applied math and uh, applied math to economics and then basically sophomore year after, uh, midway through college I realized my junior and senior year were going to be really hard and not a lot of fun if I kept along and so I realized I the, the honest answer is I realized I already had almost most of my credits to, to, for an econ major <laughs> Uh, and I could take like half elective senior year if I wanted to, if I switched to econ. So yeah, that's the, that's the real answer. <laughs> I think, I think in my class out of 1600 graduates, roughly, I believe, I mean, it was a huge number that graduated with economics. I think it was 400 or 500,
1: Oh, okay. like a third of the class
0: graduates yeah. with that degree. I
1: mean, it's kind yeah. of a joke to be honest. And what did you think you, so you liked math and then it parlayed into economics. That makes sense. What, at what point did you start thinking what you were going to do with it? Even at, like you just started thinking, okay, probably management consulting, or as you said, like. In-
0: I think it, by the time I got into interviews, I realized that at a liberal arts school, you don't actually learn anything that you're supposed to <laughs> learn. For a day. I don't know if it's and liberal arts schools, like I think it's most colleges. Like you just most kind of colleges, it. maybe. Yeah. yeah, it was easy for us to poke, you know, and say, hey, why aren't we being taught how to use Excel? And yeah, you, even to take an accounting class. You had to go to MIT, like which a lot of oh, wow. uh, Got it. kids did. Yeah, there literally was no business undergrad coursework. Zero. I didn't know said about her. Got it. Which is why so many people major in economics because it's sort of the closest thing to business, but it really isn't. It really <laughs> has nothing to do with business. It's a lot of, you know, theory and yeah. anyway. So yeah, I, I kind of realized by junior year that you know, I'm gonna have to go do all this stuff on my own. I'm gonna have to figure out. What what path I want, and you know, honestly, I kind of st- stumbled into what I had ultimately ended up uh, doing. Right after college, uh, it was a my, my first job was in, was an in options trading. So, I mean, I interviewed everywhere. I interviewed a consulting, banking, trading, uh, everywhere that it related to uh, sort of business services and financial services, uh, which at the time seemed like sort of the only place to get a generalist training. What year was that? Twenty ten is when I graduated. So, so markets are starting to recover. I would say pretty bad time. Um, not as bad as the class before me, who you know, two thousand nine. I was you. But we, we, I got right in. Yeah, there. I was 08. <laughs> Yeah, you either. Yeah, you basically started right when it happened, and you either basically. Were yeah, a job I didn't go to finance, saved. but I went into real estate, which was almost
1: as bad. But my finance friends. Mostly got either jobs rescinded or laid off right away because it was first in, first out kind of thing.
0: Well, in this in this kind of you know, kind of cutthroat culture, you know, everyone's trying to get the internship to, that then leads to the job, and so everyone who, who I knew it was in two thousand nine who had the internship in summer two thousand eight got their jobs rescinded and had to scramble. They were supposed to be partying and having fun senior year and they were all scrambling to get anything. So I would say it was a little better than that, but not much. I really wanted to work in consulting and all of the, all the consulting firms, uh, I thought I did that. That was where I set my sights, I should say. All the consulting firms cut their hiring classes by, you know, 50%. So it was still pretty hard. And yeah, I ended up uh, getting a job at an options trading firm in Chicago that, I did briefly but had a lot of fun and then I actually sort of moonlit um, studying for my case uh, interviews even after I started that job and then ended up getting a job at McKinsey and Management Consulting that fall after I'd already started my other job and then uh, joined kind of halfway through that hiring cycle. Got it. So you've got the on-paper
1: pedigree, man, Harvard to McKinsey.
0: Yeah, I just don't ask either of them how well I did, <laughs> I, <laughs> did so you, the, <laughs> I did work there. I did graduate. <laughs>
1: good. Yeah, you made it through, man. That's what counts. And uh, let's be real. We, as we both know, like, when's the last time you looked at a resume and asked for their GPA from college? Like, yeah. It goes yeah. away <laughs> pretty quick. I'm glad not to list mine anymore. Yeah, me, uh, hopefully you or I don't have to go around with our resumes anytime soon. And so you mentioned starting to wear cowboy boots again, senior year, right, of college. And that was kind of a way to connect back home. You said you were a little homesick, like that's what it was about. You're like,
0: I'm Texan, I wanna rock these things. Like That is what it was about. I don't know, I just, I, I started to appreciate more about where I was from. I really liked you know, meeting everyone that I met and seeing, getting a global perspective uh, from such a, having such a diverse class as you do in these, in these places. But you know, I, I identified as, you know, with, with my home, you know, and, and I, I was proud of it. I was also probably a little, you know, I was 21 year old, 21 years old and probably a little obnoxious (laughs) about it. You know, I was in the Texas club and, and listening to country music and, you know, trying to be a little icon That was the version, that was my version of being iconoclast at, at, at Harvard was, was kind of sticking to those guns, if not maybe even more so than I would have. When, as you said, you got the best of everything
1: in the world or not everything, but you know what I'm saying is all these high achievers and like you, you want to find your place in that group. And if you can be the Texan, like, and that start, and you start getting that positive feedback of like, you know you were i'm sure people made comments good and bad on the boots and stuff like that and it started to be a thing you've got an international class that you know that texas spirit is something of legend internationally that all of a sudden they're like that's who you are like that starts to get that positive reinforcement too i gotta imagine yeah
0: yeah well and they're just they they turned out to be good (laughs) for the winter yeah Uh, they were warm yeah too and
1: so did you like when you went to mckinsey were you rocking the cowboy boots in the office too Not
0: really in the office, that was a little bit of a, at the time, I think it's a lot more, gotten more casual along with everything else uh, in the last decade, but uh, yeah, that was more of a dress shoes and and Brooks Brothers environment for better or for worse, but yeah, it was boots on the weekend and boots and bars and honky tonks and concerts on the weekend and uh, then I ended up moving to New York and, and and leaned even further in, so yeah. Nice. And uh, how long were you at McKinsey? I did two years there, and then uh, I worked for two years at a private equity firm based in Greenwich, Connecticut, but I lived uh, in Manhattan. Uh, which firm? And those are my only two jobs I really had. Uh, it was called Catterton Partners at the time. Now they're called L. Catterton. Yeah,
1: which for those that don't know, one of the top consumer investors, period. On the private equity. Right. Yeah,
0: they've really, uh that's uh, another one where my resume looks probably better than it it, it should have because at the time uh, they were a lot smaller. I mean, it was a great firm with great people and I was lucky to, to work there. Uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to get a job there now if I did it all over again with the same experience.
1: I, I would say I appreciate how humble you're being, but at the same time, you know, I think it's a, first you're lucky, second time you're good, like, Going from Harvard to McKinsey to Catterton to building a great company, I think you're all right. I think at this point, I don't think it's anything It's a for Yeah.
0: Well, I believe you could be lucky more than
1: once, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. It's just less lucky. <laughs> but when you've done it four times, I think at some point you can take a little credit that maybe you did a couple things right. So how was McKinsey? Just step back to that real quick. Right? What, what was that experience? It was an amazing
0: place to develop a skill set and drink from a fire hose. I think for a lot of people, it is an amazing place to also build a career. It was pretty clear to me personally that I didn't want to be in client services uh, after my first project or two. I just felt my, I wanted, you know, from, from you know, brain to impact. I wanted to be more direct and I didn't find myself, you know, I think to be, to really love those places, I think you have to be a really curious person who gets bored and easily and wants to kind of go from problem to problem to problem. And you just want to be problem solving all the time. And I don't mind problem solving. Certainly some of my most interesting career moments when we're having to solve really challenging problems, but I wanted to make and I wanted to lead, and I didn't see myself doing it there. So I was only there for a year and a half, actually. So maybe I voted with my feet. But amazing people, probably the best, if I had to pick one superlative, like the friends and colleagues I met even in that year and a half, I'm still in many ways closer with than almost anyone else I've ever worked with, Um, you know, save for some of my lifetime to colleagues. So. colleagues. Yeah, pretty great place uh, for talent, um, networking and development. And so when you chose to leave for private equity, what was your thought
1: process? Like, what was it about PE? Like, what did you want to do? Yeah,
0: it was two things for me. One was I liked retail and consumer. That much I had known and I had finally done enough uh, thinking, intentional thinking about you know narrowing down the, the my next stage in my career and I had always been interested in, in consumer products and you know I was always buying the magazines for for gear and cars and and you know architecture all the stuff that was that was sort of related to people consuming things for better or for worse <laughs> and uh, so that was one angle. And I wasn't currently at the time working in any, any consumer projects. And it felt like a little bit of an accelerator for me to get into that. And the other one was I thought I wanted to learn about investing in the world of finance. I felt like, you know, if I could check both of those boxes, both general business management and consulting and, and then finance, I would be, I could kind of have a uh, the world is my oyster type moment afterward. I ended up not doing finance at, at Catterton, uh, they ended up creating, which ended up being fine, but they, but they actually created a operating group, sort of a internal consulting group after I joined right after I joined. And I, I became, well, as I would have described it, sort of the Guinea pig, uh, associate in that group and, uh, and ended up turning out to be pretty fun. I was going to say, so you
1: spent about two years just rolling your sleeves up with these businesses they were investing in to like. Yeah, it was all
0: current portfolio focused work. I, I kind of dabbled on one new deal because uh, I volunteered myself. Uh, we were thinking about uh, making a deal in the craft brewing space, and I was really into craft beer at the time. <laughs> so I jumped into that and then proved myself entirely unhelpful and then uh, got off. But yeah, I basically spent my time, actually, I think I traveled more there than I did at, at McKinsey. I, I was, on a, I was on a plane every week to yeah. I, I, most of my time was at a candy company actually. So I, I know a lot about non-chocolate candy production, pricing and strategy. <laughs> <laughs> there you
1: go. The valuable things you learned in life. So you're there two years uh, and then did you go off to start to was that the next step?
0: And I applied to business school along with all of my classmates. I applied to two. Schools. Is that the thing? You spend four years out and then go back. Is that like standard? It seemed like this. What everyone? Yeah, I meant. I sorry. I meant. I was referring to my my colleagues as sort of my, my higher ed class at, at at Catterton as well as consulting. But yeah, just it do, it was kind of the thing to do. It's changed a bit since then. There's a little bit more flexibility, I think. On whether you need to go to business school to, to advance to the next level in some of these, t- especially in uh, consulting firms. Yeah. But yeah, it felt like the thing to do, I, I didn't have a great reason to apply. And, and I think it ended up coming out because I ended up getting rejected from the only two schools I applied to. Uh, I didn't even get an interview. And Was it over an essay or what, why were you rejected? Well, I don't, they don't really, they don't tell you why <laughs> they reject you. <laughs> I could have get, I could guess. I mean, I think, you know, maybe a couple reasons. One, I think there's a lot of people, they could fill their class with people who looked like me if they wanted on, on paper. You know, I didn't have a particularly good story to tell about why I wanted to go to business school. But I think uh, other than, well, it feels like, Fun thing to do feels like what people are doing right now in my stage. And you know, can't you just let me in? <laughs> that, was, that was basically my approach, I think. Uh, it was probably a little bit uh, more specific than that, but I, I don't remember it being a particularly good application. But in, in any case, it was a wake up moment for me because that was sort of where I put my, my eggs in that basket. And I remember being in a happy hour with one of my colleagues and thinking, I guess, I mean, I guess I, I'm not getting kicked out, I guess I could stay. Kind of planned on leaving, though. So in my head, I was was already one foot out the door mentally. And we had a very stupid, naive conversation. Uh, I can say that in retrospect. That stupid, naive conversation was, hey, we've met a lot of entrepreneurs in this job. Almost all the businesses that we invest in are still led by the founder. I feel like we know most of them, and there's nothing special about them. (laughs) You know, like... We just seem like normal people. We seem as smart as them, as hardworking. As hard what, you know, it should be easy, right? You know, thankfully I had a couple beers and that was enough uh, for me to think through whether or not I should be an entrepreneur. And that's what got me started. Obviously, I did a lot of thinking beyond that. But that was literally the moment where I thought about it. And then I went back to my office, I think really the next week. Now this was on a weekend and started whiteboarding. And the first thing I whiteboarded was, at uh, the time this was 2014, early 2014, so uh, a lot of businesses in the consumer space had started to adopt you know, an e-commerce oriented uh, brand model. Uh, you had your Warby Parker, Casper, stories bubbling up, uh, all of which were too early to kind of be on our radar at the firm. You know, We were more of a middle a growth stage firm and so it felt like the right area to be looking at opportunity more early stage type businesses and and I looked down at my feet and I was wearing cowboy boots I was like well let me start with myself what do I like what do I buy these boots are the most expensive thing that I own I think (laughs) I and then I and like well let's just put on the whiteboard and I'll think about other stuff and I just couldn't stop thinking about it every time I thought about a business setting goal, I would learn something about the category, about the dynamics of it that, that made it more intriguing or more appealing. Every time I thought about the product, I, I, I could feel an energy uh, you know brewing and, and especially related to you know what I thought might be missing, but also just the, the creative pull toward it. So you just sit down I mean, you had a strict passion
1: for it, which I'm sure you know in hindsight. Like having that when things are rocking and going up and down loving what you do, being passionate about what you're putting out there gets you through that where that's where I'd say most businesses fail.
0: Yeah, I agree uh, that that's important. I wouldn't go so far as to describe it as as, you know, a capital P passion. It was more something that I really enjoyed. I connected it. I related to it being a Texan. I had a very authentic product story and experience that I felt, but I actually felt more close to the average consumer than I did a expert or a leader or someone who would go maybe ultimately would might end up creating something rather niche and I I actually viewed that as a as a as a pretty big positive because I I entered into thinking about the category and the product more from the middle of the bell curve rather than you know the far end of it and that ended up being a lot more useful of a mindset i think to take than others you know my goal was not to go build a niche custom super high-end boot business that was would be really challenging to scale my goal was to make the absolute best scaled brand out there and you know think about the elements that could drive larger market adoption without sacrificing that thing that, I, that made me passionate about it, which was the quality and the comfort and the look and everything. So it was a lot easier to be, to look at the market as a, Hey, I'm still going to be cognizant of, you know, how, the, how the general dynamics are and I'm going to try to build a better mousetrap for, for the general category.
1: Yeah. And so how long did it take you from whiteboard to watch?
0: Yeah, light. So yeah, I guess it was like a spring 2014 and we launched in late October uh, 15. So about 18 months. I didn't quit my job until July. I didn't move to Austin, which is where I wanted to build the company until August. Uh, I didn't visit the manufacturer until kind of fall, winter. So I up, even even though it was, I had given myself enough lead time. I think it, it turned into kind of a scramble. Yeah, in 2015 to actually get it off the ground. Yeah, and then day
1: one, did it work? Were you like you got to market? and You're like, wow, well, we got something here. I'm glad I did this. Or was
0: like, how was that first week of launch? I mean, yeah. So maybe a, a bit of context. So it was just me. Uh, you know, I, I worked on it you know, in a vacuum solo from, you know, full time from July, 2014 through November, 2015. And I was unclear if I I was unsure if I wanted it to be fully bootstrapped. Do I want to go the venture route? Do I want to, how big can this be? And I struggled with all that. And I, I ended up just kind of taking the middle ground and everything. And so I didn't want to just start with me shipping product out of my apartment. I didn't want it to feel like a whisper, you know, uh, in the dark, as far as a launch goes. And so ultimately ended up raising some friends and family dollars as opposed to fully bootstrapping it. It was after I had already bootstrapped (laughs) it to a certain point. I had spent all my money and then some, I had an embarrassing amount of credit card debt for, for years, unfortunately. (laughs) I think a lot of people have that and a lot of people don't talk about it. Like,
1: Where does your confidence come from that you are comfortable going, I'm going to rack up a bunch of debt because I'm committed and I'll figure it out. Like, it's not people being, like knowing you, you're
0: not frivolous.
1: You're not just like, ah, screw it. Confidence come from that you felt good about doing it. I
0: actually do think I am relatively speaking to people who have similar levels of uh, career ambition and and maybe achievement for lack of a better word. I actually do think I'm on more of the, (laughs) on the, risk uh, taking part of the spectrum and, and I, I, I've never been I've always been okay knowing that I can yeah, spend money to make money and uh, well, let's just put it this way I wasn't like the best personal budgeter uh, in my life and you know I was always thinking more big picture and long term with how I thought about uh, spending and, and listen that was a very fortunate privileged position to be in right and so I think that the, the primary answer to your question is yeah, there was definitely a level of belief and confidence. And I think that identifying that as a actually a quality that I had was part of my entrepreneurial decision. Um, it, it was because it was a hard leap to make. But the other element was, yeah, I think I just had a higher level of, of, of tolerance as well, for, for better, for worse, ended up working out. But yeah, and that was that element of pride to, you know, I wanted to, I, I took raising capital from other people really, really seriously. Yeah. I think that's been one interesting thing to observe about the market and the last 10 years of the bubble that we went through and that has since, you know, somewhat popped, but man, the number of entrepreneurs I, I heard or met were just treating these millions of dollars they were raising as stuff that was kind of a given and, and maybe some of them felt entitled about it. And I, and I, it, it kind of grossed me out, honestly, the last, uh, four or five years seeing some of that but you know not to put myself on a high horse that definitely wasn't how i felt because i didn't even want to raise capital from other people so when i did i you know i was almost embarrassed to to say hey can maybe we use some of that capital to to pay me or to maybe pay off some of my credit card debt i didn't i didn't end up you know paying my credit card debt for for three or four years just to just to open up about it (laughs) but no i was there too the
1: first this is not my first company First couple of companies racked up like twenty five grand in debt, but I was like, "I'll pay it off eventually, and we'll figure it out." And again, this was also when I was like paying myself minimum wage, so twenty five grand in debt was like an annual salary. Yeah, that's a lot. I like, uh, this gonna feel, but I'm like, but I'll get there. I'll be fine. Like there was something, oh, honestly, at the time,
0: probably a little irrational about like, I think I'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. I, it is irrational, yeah, and I had to bet on that. And that was all part of the equation. I was like, well, if I'm gonna bet my career on this, what's the difference between betting another 30 grand? <laughs> I already bet my career. Yeah, well, I, I say all that because I ended up, what was expectation? The expectations for me were not so low that it didn't matter, but they weren't sky high either. You know, I, I didn't, you know, go raise $5 million pre-product. Like, you know, I already had product. You know, sitting in the, you know, on the line, ready to get delivered. Um, I raised $500,000. I set what I thought was a reasonable sales goal of a million dollars in year one. That was what I thought was reasonable. I had no idea what I was doing. And yeah, I mean, the short answer is it did work. We did $2 million in our first year, but the first week was... Challenging, I'd say. I knew that we had that the product was decent. I knew that we had hit a bar on that. That because you know, I had waited to launch until I felt like we hit a bar that was that was you know the right place to be in at least for the first go. And which is I think a higher level, uh, a higher bar than say uh, you know maybe a SaaS business's uh, beta product or MVP for that you know whatever you want to call it. Can't really take an MVP approach to a high end footwear product, so uh, you know, it was beyond that. People approach us with MVP I'm like viable is an
1: important part of that acronym. Like, people will launch minimal products all the time, but it's got to be
0: viable. Maybe it was an MVP, but to be viable, it just had, she had to be pretty good, um, as opposed to being a piece of crap. So, yeah, we did, I, I forget exactly, I, th- I think we did like, like 20 grand the first day, and I don't think I had a zero in that first that first holiday, I mean, it helped to be launching basically during holiday season, basically when the highest level of interest in in buying and wearing boots is, you know, I think we did 100K in our first 10 weeks. Uh, so obviously that was like an initial pop and then got kind of slow. And then I ended up hiring some at the end of the year who then ran the business with me throughout our first for full calendar year in 2016, Brandon. And man, he and I, <laughs> we would take the I, would, I had an old Forerunner that I had bought when I was on my last doll. I sold my BMW and bought a forerunner. I think it was like, you know, three or four thousand dollars. <laughs> and, you know, we'd stuff as many booths as I can fit in it. I think it was like between fifty and sixty, depending on if we were including men's or women's. And we'd go to farmers markets, we'd go to holiday markets, we'd go to junior league meetings, we'd go <laughs> we yeah, we we actually I'd say an, an in, not a, not insignificant not insignificant part of our sales in those first few months were physical sales, even though we were supposed to be the first we were the first e-commerce oriented you
1: know cowboy boot brand. But there's something to be said about the scrappiness of that. Like you were literally watching people's reaction to the product in person. Like the the kind of benefits you get from that just can't be matched. I would think that would have a lot of impact.
0: Yeah, I, I'd like to say that. It was a noble goal, such as gathering product market insights. The truth is, it also just felt like a shirt that's like, hey, if we can just do like $5,000 of sales, you know, once or twice a month, then we'll pay our rent. And at least we're starting (laughs) somewhat in the black. (laughs) Yeah. It's no, and I mean,
1: but that is, I like businesses that start that way. Like, we need to make a business. We need to make money. We need to like actually pay some stuff. Because you, you kind of mentioned on the fundraising side, and like we have a venture fund, I we look at all types of businesses like this. And if you're not used to like, all right, like at some point this has to actually generate a profit and make some money and pay some bills, you end up with a year like last year where the fundraising dries up, and now I think this year you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies and a lot of these tech companies that just never learned that muscle, so to speak. And versus you, as things grow and ebb and flow, and you know, and go, keep going you understand the unit economics, you understand, like, this is how we actually make money with this. So depending on the demand in the market and the economy and all that, you can flex that way. It creates the right long term success. So at what point did you feel like I did it? Like, was there a point where it's like I arrived, like we are successful? Was it that first year? Was it what was that first feeling of like, I'm
0: successful, I made something, I built a great brand here? I've gotten a, a slightly different version of that question a lot that I've, I've had a hard time answering, but that, that maybe is a little better way to phrase it. What I don't know the answer to, there, what, what there wasn't ever for me was like a, hey, this is working moment. I mean, it was always a, it's working this much this day, this much the next, and we got to get to this place next month, this much next year, this much, you know, and definitely always felt like, you know, boiling in a pot of water. Now, there were definitely a couple of moments where I took it, I kind of took a step back and looked around and felt you know, proud uh, or, or impactful, and I think those moments stand out pretty clear in my mind. When was the first one? There was a couple of maybe fun moments to, to, to recognize. One was our second year my uh, colleague and I made a bet on the sales number for that year. And this was before, I think we'd only had one, maybe it was three of us at that point. So still very, we were very slow to hire for better or for worse. <laughs> and I it became really clear that we were going to just blow past that budget or that number that we had, we had bet on. And the consequence was getting a tattoo. So I, of course, you know, bet on the downside so that, I was a, it was a hedge, and so that when we beat it, at least I was getting a tattoo because we beat it. So I do have a Taco's tattoo in my bicep now. But that was a great moment, and it was. And I remember being we were like backstage at a country concert, that, and you know, we had gifted the guys boots, and we've now since become friends of ours. And like that was like a hey, I have a really cool job. The business is working. You know i'm getting a tattoo this is real you know and then i think that maybe that ne the next moment was i'd say a couple of years later when we built our first corporate office and you know 2019 and you know, i just looked around the room and there was this kind of toast moment and it always felt you know we were kind of moving from office to a co-working space to co-working space and sublet a weird room that doesn't you know, really fit our vibe to the next thing and just to look around something that we had crafted had it was purpose-built for us a, t- a team of I don't I don't remember how many people at that point maybe 30 30 people around the room and you could just see pride in other people's face I think that was the that was the other moment it was like the, the next degree was was like well certainly I was I thought it was cool where we I felt personally like I was doing what I wanted to do and creating something that had value, at least for myself and our customers and hopefully someday for our investors and, and, and all of our colleagues to to benefit from. And, and it was that next layer that was like, oh man, all these people have jobs? Like, and I started thinking about how many people had a job? And then I started thinking about our uh, Mexico partners and everything, and just, yeah, I mean, it, it made me... It was that moment I think that every, I think, successful business owner ends up having at some point or another, which is like, you're way more proud of the impact that you have on the people than, than you know, the dollars in the P&L or your bank account for that matter. Yep. And
1: so, where are you now? How many people work at Tacovus?
0: Over 600 people on payroll between corporate office and retail field. And how many retail stores do you have at this point? We have 30 retail stores. Uh, we started opening stores about four years ago. Uh, it's been a very important part of our business. Hovers around half or just under half of our revenue already. I remember when we met 2019. Was it tw- no, 2020. We met at, Yeah, February 2020. Yeah, and you were telling we a f- me that I think that I was, think I was about effect. to open our sixth location. Yeah, we were. Yeah. We had five at the time, and it was probably. 20% of our sales tops. Yeah, it's been a great move. At the TI corporate is probably 120 people, you know, in, in who work on the, the office that I'm sitting in. Uh, of course, they're not always here, it's flexible. Yeah, that's how it works now. Uh, but I actually hired a, a, the biggest move I made was I hired, a, uh, we, the board and I hired a CEO last year, so. How you doing? I am. How's that been? I am. Yeah, for a year, I've, I've had a new role, my first new job in uh, nine years. <laughs> so, and what's what's your role? I, I'm the executive chairman. Um, still, still serving, obviously as founder, and um, I'm chairman of the board. But I, my day to day role is uh, executive chairman, and been working side by side with uh, our CEO and our leadership team for a year now. On that, it's been awesome. Yeah. Because I know that's going to be super hard for some founders and and
1: to, frankly, find the right CEO, too. But I know a lot of people that doesn't go very well, including a friend's Austin-based company that is currently having a whole bunch of public disaster
0: uh, scribe. You're familiar with that whole story? Uh, No, I'm not familiar with what's going on over there. Yeah, it's a challenging search, challenging decision. It took me years to make the decision. I feel very fortunate that we were able to find someone who not only I trusted... To lead the business, but who was also complimentary and had a partnership mindset with me, which I think obviously relieves a lot of the founder sort of stress and and um, hair wringing so hand wringing rather. So yeah, I, I, it's been it's been great, and I've been able to engage, awesome. you know, in the business and all the areas that I I still enjoy and think I can have an impact while knowing that I'm you know trusting him and the team to actually make all the day-to-day decisions.
1: Makes sense. And so, a couple more questions. Number one, what's next for you?
0: I don't have anything next.
1: I, I don't mean necessarily stepping away. I'm saying even with this, like, what what are you excited about coming down? What's exciting for the... Yeah. Well, I,
0: I often get the question, hey, you must be doing something else. It's like, no, no, actually, I just... Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I kind of just cracked to the job that I wanted to have and I it actually kind of worked out. It's been kind of fun. Uh, man, we're, we're doing a lot. There's a lot going on at Tukovus. Uh We... Retail still major part of our expansion strategy. You got a few more of those stores popping up this year. You know, another eight to ten next year, I believe. We have. I mean, we for a while actually we've been building other categories uh, within. You know, under the Dakota's you know, we're still we're one brand still. It's all we sell. We our stores are. You know and our online side are the only places that we sell to Covis and we only sell to Covis stuff, you know, so really cultivating that ecosystem on the product side has been really fun. We've, we've I'd say, you know, as a product, physical product oriented business that has, you know, calendars that seem to get longer as the business gets bigger and better. What we do, it's, it can be sometimes frustrating to <laughs> You know like oh man, let's wait for next year or spring '24 or fall '24, and we got all this really cool stuff coming out. And you know, the truth is, everything's great today too. But it's one. Of, it's also exciting. It also is a way to, to keep uh, myself, the team, everyone really engaged in knowing that like we're always getting better, we're always adding, we're always improving. We're you know we've got you know we're men's and women's. We do footwear, accessories, and apparel. I'd say you know a lot more focus right now on on growing. Our non-footwear categories that we've given before we're about 80 percent footwear today uh, you know maybe that number will shift down a little bit over time women's business is growing off the charts it's awesome we've finally got some really good merchandising design attention there last year and, and moving forward uh, yeah i mean we're just rocking and rolling it's uh we're glad we're private <laughs> and we not to deal with the rigmarole of the market, and we're in stock prices every day. Um, we might be you know public someday down the road, but uh, for now, I'll enjoy not stressing out about my
1: public portfolio every day. yep, it's a good way to do it, and so last question for you, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone that's like looking to pursue their dreams, whatever that might be, whether it's entrepreneurial or some other uh, vocation but like someone that something you either wish you heard or you did hear that really kept you going because I know it sounds like
0: a straight line, but it never is. Well, yeah, there's a piece of advice right there. Definitely not a straight line. I'd say for me, whether or not I wish I would heard this, I'm not sure, but I, if I had to think about what has uh, led to me personally feeling most fulfilled, and therefore I imagine successful, because if you don't feel fulfilled you're, you, might, uh, you might struggle is being honest about what's different about you. And you can be inspired all you want by other stories, other people, what you might interpret as entrepreneurial nature, but um, everyone brings something pretty different to the table. And I think it was me actually being uh, cognizant of what made me different and not necessarily good or bad, just different that ended up leading to what I wanted to focus on leading me to ultimately make the decision to jump in and, and do it, do what I did the way I did it. And I think too many people that I've talked to who are kind of contemplating entrepreneurial careers, um, whether that's literally starting a business or a brand or, you know, something else in the entrepreneurial path, they want to kind of copy paste. They, they want to get advice. They want the mentorship. That's basically just tell me what to do. And, and, you know, I think one big flaw that I had, because I'd, I'd say, maybe hypocritically, I would say, talk to a lot of people, get great mentorship. I didn't talk to a lot of people, to be honest. I knew that I had to solve, like most important, this is maybe where it's, where the, where the council is a little bit uh, controversial, is, you know, you can read all the books and talk to all the people you want, but ultimately, the only thing that really matters is that you're, you're creating something that that fills a gap that, that people want, whether that's one really important thing or, you know, many things that can that, that many people want. And I became obsessed with that. And and I and I did because that was what I was personally obsessed with. And not necessarily in boots, but but the idea of creating something really special. And so if you don't have that then, you know, it, it might not be the right career. So no, it's
1: I mean, if you have a great product that people want, everything else is easy. And if you don't, everything is hard. Yeah. And I say easy subjectively, obviously. Every I think running a business is never easy. Yeah, know. yeah. It's type two fun, type too easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Paul, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Yeah, thank you, Eric, for hosting. Absolutely.
0: You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.